the Gospel of John chapter 1, and we are now three weeks into our John series, a series that we are calling That You May Believe. For again, John writes this gospel so that unbelievers would come to believe that Jesus is the Son of God and have life in His name, but he also writes this so that believers, us, would continue to believe, that we keep growing, keep believing in Jesus. And I want to begin our time this morning by asking all of us in this room to think about someone who has inspired you in regard to your faith journey. So someone who has been an inspiration to you in the midst of your journey in faith and growing in the grace and knowledge of Jesus Christ. Maybe for some of us it's an amazing godly parent, maybe even a mom, what a great day it would be to tell her that and of her example um, for you. Others, maybe it was siblings or other family members, maybe a a friend, a coach, a teacher, or maybe an amazing, awesome, incredible, good-looking pastor. Oh, you don't know one? Okay, well, maybe an older believer who you looked at and you saw just the faithfulness of their life and it encouraged you. Maybe it was a younger believer who their passion and desire stirred up passion and desire within you. Maybe it was someone you learned or read about, a missionary, a pastor of days gone by, a Christian martyr who encouraged you. Maybe it was a, someone who was just simply a faithful follower of Jesus in a secular field. Maybe just an ordinary disciple used by God in the midst of extraordinary circumstances because of everyday faithfulness. So just think about who that person is. Some of us may be thinking about a few people, but thank God for them. Thank God for putting those individuals in your life to point you to Jesus, to point you to more to who he is. And I might be going on a limb now, but I'm going to bet, and that's not good in church, but I'm, I'm going to bet that none of you in this moment were thanking John the Baptist. So none of you in your time were thinking, yeah, John the Baptist, that's my guy. And while John is typically um, not talked about as an inspiration of our faith, I think that idea is inescapable when we consider what the opening chapter of John's gospel reveals about this intriguing character and about the mission that was given to him. This morning, I want us to listen in on a conversation between John and some religious leaders of his day and hear him continually point them away from himself and point them to Jesus. So they're wanting to talk about him, and he's like, I don't have any interest to talk about me. I want to talk about Jesus. I want to talk about him. So on this Mother's Day, the goal is to continue looking to Jesus by remembering three things, who we aren't, who we are, and who he is who he is. So if you're able, I'm going to ask you to stand as we read John 1, 19 through 34, and then we're going to dive in together. So beginning at verse 19, the verses will also be on the screen. And this is a testimony of John. Remember, John the Baptist is who um, John the Apostle is writing about. When the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, who are you? He confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. And they asked him, what then? Are you Elijah? He said, I am not. Are you the prophet? And he answered, no. So they said to him, who are you? We need to give an answer to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? He said, I am the voice of one crying out in the wilderness, make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. Now they had been sent from the Pharisees. They asked him, then why are you baptizing if you are neither the Christ nor Elijah nor the prophet? John answered them, I baptize with water, but among you stands one you do not know. 
Even he who comes after me, the strap of whose sandal I'm not worthy to untie. These things took place in Bethany across the Jordan where John was baptizing. The next day he saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is he of whom I said, After me comes a man who ranks before me because he was before me. I myself did not know him, but for this purpose I came baptizing with water that he might be revealed to Israel. And John bore witness. I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove, and it remained on him. I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, He on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and have borne witness that this is the Son of God. Let's pray. Jesus, you are that and you are more. And help us, Lord, to keep looking to you in this moment, God. Speak. Just show us today who we're not. Show us who we are. And show us always, Lord, who you are. The one unchanging constant in our lives. Just speak, O oh God, in Jesus' name, amen. And you may be seated. As I do often, I want to kind of begin by taking us back to C.S. Lewis's The Chronicles of Narnia, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. And when we're first introduced to the world of Narnia, a once beautiful place that has become cold and dark, and the four Pevensey uh, children enter through a magical wardrobe into this snow-covered forest of Narnia, and they learn that it's been dark and wintry for a hundred years. In Narnia, evil reigns, hope is dead, but with the arrival of these four children, things begin to change. With their arrival, the inhabitants of Narnia slowly begin to hope again. The ancient prophecy, Narnian prophecy, said that before deliverance would come to them, two sons of Adam and two daughters of Eve would appear. So these children became messengers of hope to Narnia. But the hopes of the citizens of Narnia are not in the children. They were in someone else who would come, a lion named Aslan. Now the children hear of an old Narnian rhyme that says, Wrong will be right when Aslan comes in sight, and the sound of his roar, sor sorrows will be no more. When he bears his teeth, winter meets its death, and when he shakes his mane, we shall have spring again. So the Pevensey children brought hope, not in themselves, but in one who would follow them who would bring hope and bring deliverance. And in John 1, we meet a man who brings a message of hope, yet the hope is not in himself. He's not pointing anyone to himself. He's pointing in one who will come after him, but yet one who is before him. So John the Baptist points to the only hope there is in this world, the only one who will never let us down. He points to Jesus, the one who meets our deepest longings. So I want to lay before us three truths that I pray will speak to all of our hearts today, regardless of where we are in this life. And the first truth is this. We must know who we're not. We must know who we're not. Look at verse 19. This is the testimony of John. When the Jews, let me just stop there. The word Jews appears 71 times in the gospel of John, but never once does that term refer to the nationality of the Jews. It always refers to people who were against Jesus. Those that were against him were called the Jews. So the Jews sent priests and Levites to ask him, Who are you? He confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. So the Jewish delegation 
comes out to John, asks him, who are you? John's work, his behavior, his dress, his character caused them to all be curious about who he was. And their first thought was, is this guy the Messiah? Is he going to say he is the Messiah? And I know this seems like a worthless point. I get that, but we need to make it anyway. Our true identities, who we truly are, must not begin really with who we are, but I think we first need to realize who we're not. What I mean by that is this, we're not God. We're not God. Again, that sounds like a stupid thing for anyone to say from the pulpit, but let's be honest. The way we oftentimes live our lives and the temptations that we often give into show that we really wish that we were God. We really wish that we could make all the choices for our lives and that whatever power there is above us would um, bend to our will and make things better for us. Because we need to realize, think about this, the heart of sin, the fall of mankind, the heart of sin is the desire to be like God. Back in, in Genesis 3, the serpent comes to Adam and Eve and says, you will not surely die if you eat this tree. God knows as soon as you eat it, you're going to become like him. So being like God was part of Adam and Eve's temptation. And the heart of our own sin is that desire to be the God of our own lives, to do what is right for us. And so again, with our identities, we need to start with who we're not. We're not Christ. We're not the Savior of anything. We don't have the power. I I had a thought this week. Two different things. I looked in the refrigerator and... um, strawberries that we had just bought were already going bad. I'm like, come on. And then every day for lunch, I eat a banana. But I I am a banana snob, excuse me. There has to be, I'm also probably a slob in the way I eat bananas. But anyway, I'm a a snob and it can't be too green and it can't have um, little black dots all over it either. There has to be like just perfect thing that, there's like a three hour window where the the banana is perfect. And it always happens probably at one o'clock in the morning when I'm asleep. And uh, then, you know, it's too green. I get up and then it's gone. And it's beyond me. But the, the thought is this, I can't even keep piece of fruit from rotting and yet sometimes I'm tempted to believe that I can I can be the God of my own life that I I can somehow control things and I can't we don't have the power and then it goes on they asked him what then are you Elijah he said I am not now don't have time to unpack this but this is kind of cool because what we have here in John 1 is John the Baptist gives us three I am statements three I am statements Now, Jesus in John gives us seven I am statements, and every I am statement of Jesus means I'm God, I'm God, I'm God. All the the three I am statements of John is I am not, I am not, I'm just a voice, showing us who he's not. But why would they ask him, are you Elijah? Well, for one, the way he looked and he, he acted. He was bold in his confrontation. He looked like a wild man. He wore camel's hair for his clothes. He had a a belt of leather around his waist. Now, what we know at the time of John the Baptist, Elijah had been long gone, but on the last page of the Old Testament, Malachi chapter 4, there is a prophecy that before Jesus comes, Elijah would come. So here's this this prophecy. In fact, think about this. In fact, when Jews even today celebrate the Old Testament, They leave a seat open in case Elijah decides to show up. So they want to make sure we need to leave room for Elijah. But John says, John the Baptist here says, I'm not Elijah. 
Well, questions begin to mount up because in Matthew chapter 17, Jesus says of John the Baptist, he is Elijah. So if Jesus says he is and John says he isn't, and we always say Jesus can't lie and always tell the truth, then are we saying in this moment that John is a liar and that we should throw out everything that we're preaching today and uh, forget about John? Well, no, it's not that simple because in Luke chapter 1, verse 17, when the angel appears to Zechariah, John's father, the angel said this, that his son, John the Baptist, would come in the spirit and power of Elijah. So he will come in Elijah's spirit and Elijah's power and boldness, proclaiming the same message that Elijah proclaimed, a message of repentance. So John the Baptist came in the spirit of Elijah. Now, what about the prophecy? Well, the prophecy is still true. Elijah will indeed come before the coming of Jesus. But when? Well, according to Malachi 4, 5, before the great and awesome day of the, that the Lord comes, meaning his second coming. Before his second coming, Elijah will come. Moving on quickly. Then they ask him another question. Are you a prophet? And he answered, no. Now, in our minds, maybe we're thinking, well, what prophet? Well, there are many ancient Jews and, and ancient Jewish writings that believe that before Jesus would come, that either Isaiah or Jeremiah would come, and they would um, find or restore the Ark of the Covenant to its proper place of worship in the temple. So maybe they were thinking that, or let me just give you another thought. In Deuteronomy 18.15, Moses said, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brother's it's him that you shall listen to. So we know that Jesus is Lord. We know that he is Savior. We know he's King. We know he's High Priest. But we know he's more than just Lord. He's more than just Savior. He's more than just King and High Priest. He's all of these pictures together. And he is also the prophet. In fact, Jesus said this. We know the parable of building your house upon the rock. What we don't always know is the application of it, where Jesus said, those who hear my words and do them are like those who build their house upon the rock. Jesus didn't say, those who hang a cross up and a picture of me in their house in Sunday school rooms build their house upon a rock. No, that is not the, the picture here. Those who hear the words of Jesus and who does them are building their house upon the rock, and when the storm comes, you will stand because the rock that your life is built on will stand. And in and, and one sense, think about these questions of John. This is John's success test. This poor kid could have become the rich kid in this moment. This unknown guy could have become the rock star in this moment. This guy who worshiped God could have allowed himself to be worshiped. All he had to say was, yeah, I'm the prophet. That's me. You're looking for the I'm the prophet. I'll sign your scrolls if you want me to. And he could have become that guy. But he said, no. Listen, let me give you a truth that might, you might want to write down. Saying no is hard, especially when saying yes carries some serious benefits. Saying no is hard, especially when saying yes carries some serious benefits. But John says no. Why? Because of his humility. And let me lay it before us today. Humility won't make you popular, but according to James chapter 4, humility will make sure that you get more and more of God's grace, which is what you need more than popularity. So humility might not make you popular, but it will guarantee more and more of God's grace upon you. We must know who we're not. And before I move on, let me just say this. Let me just kind of speak to moms, but also everybody in this room. 
We live in this world, especially in this social media day, where people are constantly posting their, re- their quote-unquote realities of who they are, their, their perfect mother experiences, their perfect life, their perfect this, their perfect that. The problem is it's not true. It's not true. There's no such thing. Even when these moms, these individuals have their, I'm going to be real for just a second. Most of the time, there's still something they're holding back. There's something they're not fully telling. So even in their most, I'm just going to be real moments, they're not being real. And yet our temptation is to compare our lives and say, man, why can't I be more like that, even though that doesn't exist? We were talking on Wednesday night. It was such a good Good word, not because I said it, but because the word of God says it. And and the the picture of David and Goliath. And right before David goes before Goliath, King Saul, who's a head taller than anyone in Israel, calls David in, fits him with his armor, and David says, I can't wear these. And the lesson for us is this. Stop trying to gird yourself in other people's clothing. Start, stop trying to wrap yourself in other people's gifts. Stop trying to become other people and instead surrender to the one who God made you to be. Amen. Surrender that. God, I just want to be who you made me to be. And I'm telling you, the temptation is still real for me as a pastor. I see other pastors. I'm like, God, why can't I be like that? Or why can't I have this? Or why do I walk into a room with pastors and I feel like I'm the dumbest person in the room? And God tells me, because that's how I made you. And I'm like, well, thanks a lot, God. (laughs) Appreciate that. But the point is, every single one of our lives, regardless of the, the weaknesses or even our perceived strengths, Our strengths are weaknesses for God, but those things can bring glory to him. They can bring glory to him. So we must know who we're not. But then secondly, we must know who we are. John the Baptist was a bit of an outlaw. Unlike other religious leaders in the day that had their hair parted right, that had their shirt tucked in and probably drove a sedan, John wasn't that. Instead, John probably had tattoos. Without a doubt, he had dreads because he was a Nazarite. Um, He probably drove a Harley and listened to Charlie Daniels. I mean, typical pastor's kid, right? I mean, remember, John was the son of a priest, what we would call a pastor's kid. This was, this was it. I mean, this guy was kind of out there. Some of you are like, John's pretty cool. Never knew John. Never knew he drove a Harley. See, you come to church and you learn things. But John says this. It says, they said to him, who are you? Who do you say about yourself? Now, if I was John, here's probably what I would have said. I just said, you want to know who I am? I'll tell you who I am. I'm the last of the Old Testament prophets. My birth was proclaimed to my father by an angel. I am the son of a priest and you know who he is. I was filled with the Holy Spirit in the womb. Can you say that? I don't think so. And according to Jesus, I'm the greatest guy who's ever lived. Who are you? Now, John could have said that And it would have been true, but instead John says, I am the voice. Now, I don't know if you've ever watched the television show, The Voice. I mean, there are so many different singing competitions that we can watch that vie for our attention. But the, The Voice is a little unique in that the judges have their back turned to the contestants and um, during their auditions, and all they can can hear is is the voice. They they can't have their eyes play tricks on them or their their eyes be tempted by this person's image or their good looks. All they're judging on is based on what they 
here. Well, just prior to Jesus coming on the scene, stepping on the human stage, G, or John, excuse me, um, kind of comes up as the warm-up act. And when they asked him, John, who are you? He says, I'm just the voice. Just the voice. It's John's way of saying, I'm not the word. He's the word. I'm just the voice. Or a different way of saying it, John was saying, I'm just a nobody trying to tell everybody about a somebody. So all I am, just a nobody trying to tell everybody about a somebody. And he says this, I am the voice of one crying out in the wilderness, make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah says. So he's quoting from Isaiah 40. In ancient times, before a king would enter into a city, the roads were straightened, and of course, they were made smooth. Now, on our first trip to India, we kind of saw this, myself and Larry went to a Buddhist temple, and on the way to the Buddhist temple, they were doing a road work on this road leading to the Buddhist temple, which was kind of weird because you saw no other road work being done in India. And we were like, what in the world is going on? They said, well, the Dalai Lama is coming and visiting, and they are getting this road prepared for his visit. So someone important was coming, and they were, they were preparing the road. However, so magnificent is the God of Israel that just filling potholes or shaving down bumps in the road or making a road straighter isn't sufficient to prepare the way for his coming. Even in Isaiah 40, Isaiah even says you need to take mountains and bring them down and take valleys and build them up. That's how important it is for his coming. But what Isaiah wasn't saying is let's do a literal land renovation. Let's bring in an engineer and let's get it all planned. What he was saying is this, Jesus is coming and you better be prepared. He's coming, and you better be prepared. In the same way for us, if we say, if this book says Jesus is coming again, then we better be prepared. We better be prepared, and we better prepare our hearts. You know, John's ministry reminds me of the breed of dog called the pointer, one of the the hunter's best friends who would go out and steadfastly point to the birds that the hunter is seeking. Well, John is the human pointer. And he's just pointing people to Jesus. His life is just pointing people away from himself. He's saying, don't look to me. I am not. I am not. But I know I am. I know the one who is. I know the one who is and pointing to Jesus. Just over 100 years after John died, there was an early church author who wrote about the spreading influence of believers. And he said this, we are but of yesterday. Yet we have filled every place among you, every city, every island, every town, every fortress, every marketplace, every tribe, every company, every palace, every senate, every forum with Jesus. We have left nothing to you but the temple of your own gods. Listen to what he's saying. We as the people of God, the only place that's safe from us is a place where you gather and worship false gods. Every other place we're going to, may that be true of us. As we leave places of worship like this, may we go into our communities, may we go into this city, and may we point people to Jesus. It's not enough to point your family to Jesus one time. Keep pointing your family to Jesus. It's not enough to point coworkers or neighbors to Jesus one time. Keep pointing them to Jesus. And if you've forfeited that opportunity, maybe by the way that you've acted and, and doing things, there's nothing wrong with saying, hey, guys, or hey, girls, I have I've blown it. I've sought God's forgiveness, and now I need to seek yours. And showing them a picture of what it's like to live 
authentic Christian lives knowing that we mess up so much in our lives and we need his grace every single day. And then John continued his testimony this way. He who comes after me, the strap of whose sandal I'm not worthy to untie. Don't miss this. Last week we said that Jesus said that Jesus or John was the greatest man who had ever lived. Now John is saying, I'm not even worthy to be this guy, Jesus' servant. Now what a servant would do, the master would go throughout life, he would walk throughout his day with his sandals on, strapped up um, throughout the, the heat of Jerusalem. He would come home, his servant would meet him, would unstrap his sandals, take them off, wash his feet. And what John is saying is this, I'm not even worthy to do that. Now compare that, compare that thought with the way you and I sometimes think about God. What we, the way sometimes we think about God is this. God, I deserve better than this. God, I can't believe that you haven't answered my prayers the way I want you to answer my prayers. Or we often get angry with God for not serving us the way we would like him to serve us. Meaning John is saying, I'm not even worthy to be his servant. And we're saying, God, you need to serve me better. Just think about how far we have fallen from that picture. Oh, that God would fill our hearts again with the reality of who we are before him. Yes, you are less than a servant, but you are less than a servant of a God who can use you, who wants to use you, who desires to use you in awesome and amazing ways to show forth his glory and his faithfulness regardless of what that looks like. Know who you are. Know who you are. And then lastly, number three, we must know who Jesus is. We must know who Jesus is. If you want to understand who you are, the first thing you do is compare yourself to Jesus. Place yourself before him. Understand who he is. In verse 29, look at it. The next day he sees, John sees Jesus coming and he says this, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This one sentence in this one sentence, we have the heart of the gospel message. Behold the Lamb of God. John, John doesn't say, hey, look at me, guys. I'm pretty amazing. He doesn't say, listen to me, guys. My message is pretty awesome. Instead, he said, look away from me. Behold him. Look at him. For centuries, Israel had been sacrificing two lambs every day. One in the morning, one in the evening. First in the tabernacle, later on in the temple. As a son of a priest, John the Baptist understood how the sacrificial system worked. He probably understood that sacrificial system was never meant to take away sin, only to cover sin. And yet when he sees Jesus coming, he says, this is the one who takes away our sin, who casts our sin as far as the east is from the west and remembers them no more. Remember our series that we just did, Jesus in the Old Testament, and we look back and we see Jesus as the Lamb. Jesus is the lamb slain from the foundation of the earth. He's the animal slain in the Garden of Eden to cover Adam and Eve after their sin. He is the lamb that would provide for Abraham and Isaac on Mount Moriah. He is the Passover lamb for Israel in Egypt. He is the lamb for the guilt offering in Leviticus. He is Isaiah's lamb who is led to the slaughter. But he is the unique lamb. He is the one and the only lamb who takes away the sins of the world. Is he yours? Is he yours? When you stop and think about it, you see a progression in this passage of Scripture of how a person comes to see Jesus. First of all, Jesus is just a lamb. 
Then he becomes the lamb. Then he becomes my lamb who takes away my sin. Listen, coming to Christ first begins with kind of a general respect for him. He's a lamb, but he's sometimes just a lamb among many, a lamb among others. Then there's a moment in our lives where we recognize that Jesus is unique from other figures in history. He's the lamb. He's more than a prophet. He's more than a miracle worker. He's more than a great teacher. He's actually the son of God in human form. And when we believe that, when we turn from our sin, when we turn to Jesus Christ, trusting him as Savior and Lord, he becomes my lamb who takes away my sin. Where are you at in that progression? Is Jesus just a a lamb? Is he the lamb, kind of unique? Or is he your lamb? To the one who takes away your sin. Oh, that he is. But then John ends this section this way in verse 34. And I have seen and have borne witness that this is the Son of God. I sometimes wonder what it would have been like to be there in the crowd when John the Baptist was preaching. What would it have been like when John the Baptist basically said um, to those who could hear, flee from the wrath to come. You bunch of serpents, you bunch of evil individuals, what would that have been like? And then what would it have been like when John stops his preaching and points to someone and says, guys, behold him, look to him. He is the Lamb of God who takes away your sin. I wonder what it would have been like. What an incredible moment, centuries of anticipation, studying scriptures, examining the prophecies like Isaiah and and others, hearing God's promises to his people, to deliver them, to redeem them, to rescue them. The pressure had been building. Some had given up and stopped looking, yet others continued to look, continued to believe, continued to to hope that God made this promise. God's going to fulfill this promise. So therefore, I keep looking to him. And yet here, now John says, for those who have been looking, for those who keep looking, even for those who aren't looking, look to him. He's the lamb. Look to him. Here he is. Every time I read the Old Testament, reading through the Old Testament, I I feel the same sense of anticipation in my heart. I follow along as God's plan of redemption slowly unfolds over century after century after century. I, I already know what's coming, but the drama draws me in every time. It draws me in. I read of the failures of the judges and the kings, the prophets proclaiming and weeping, the boasting and unbelief of the arrogant individuals, the cries of the repentant, the lamentations of the the grieving. Finally, we get the, the New Testament and the Messiah comes. Promises will be fulfilled. There's restoration and redemption and hope for us and then this flows into greater anticipation we read of jesus's birth we read of his life we read of his his teachings and his stories we read of his signs and wonders and although we know what's coming our excitement grows more and more jesus makes himself known he goes to the cross he dies as the lamb for your sin and my sin he dies for us And we behold him and we can't help but be overcome by joy of who he is and what he is doing for us. Yet this joy intensifies when we know what Jesus will do for us. We already know what he has done. 
But we know what he will do. He will come again. And I think about another writing of John. John the Apostle that he wrote in Revelation. In Revelation 5, we're given this, this picture of the throne. And this scroll is presented. It's a picture of all of God's plans for redeeming mankind, for bringing all of his plans uh, to fruition. And no one is found in heaven worthy to open the scroll. And John begins to cry. He begins to weep. And the one with him says, don't weep. What are you doing? He'll open the scroll. And when John looks, he sees a, a lion, but he sees a lamb as though he had been slain. Revelation 5, 6 gives us that picture, a lamb standing as though it had been slain. As we say all the time, the only man-made thing in heaven will be the scars of Jesus. The only man-made thing in heaven will be the scars of Jesus, forever reminding us of the price that Jesus paid so that we could be in his presence. Then we keep reading in Romans, or Revelation 5, and we read that there is a multitude around the Lamb, and they are singing and declaring, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain. Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. One day, brothers and sisters, we will be around the throne and we will say, Worthy is the Lamb. But let me say this. Let's not wait until then. Let's not wait until that moment. Don't wait until you get around the throne to be the first time you ever scream out, Worthy is the Lamb. He won't just be worthy then. He's worthy now. He is worthy now. Worthy is He. Someday, all of the promises He's made to us will be fulfilled. And right now, we wait in anticipation. But let me bring... This week and last week together, as we wait, as we look, as we behold the Lamb who was slain, as we look to the one and behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, as we keep looking to Jesus, here's what happened. Here's what happens. Grace upon grace upon grace upon grace upon grace upon grace meets us in our every look. We look to Him and we find grace. We look to Him and we find more grace. We look to Him... And the question becomes, why aren't we looking to him more? If every time we look to him, we get more grace, let's keep looking. Don't stop looking. Let me, let me close with the words of John Piper here. And just think about how this is true of your life. John Piper says this, We can see the greatest event in the world happening and yet not see it. We can hear without hearing. We have an incredible capacity for assessing spiritual things wrongly. And one of our greatest weaknesses, more today than ever probably, is that we do not meditate on the great things. We do not stop and ponder the things of God. Oh, to God today we would stop. Ponder Him. Know who you're not. Know who you are, especially compared to Him. But never, ever, ever forget who He is. For who He is makes all the difference. I'm going to ask you to stand, and we're going to call the musicians forward as we enter in this time of invitation and consecration, and may God finish this time as we pray. Father, you are in control. Lord, work and move. Holy Spirit, have your way in this moment. But Lord, remind every one of us in this room who we're not. God, we aren't you. We aren't you. We're not the point. Jesus, you're the point. All we are is the voice. We're the the pointer pointing to you. Help us to keep pointing to you. Lord, we are your servants. Not worthy to even be your servants, God, but you use us because you love us. 
And Jesus, you are the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And may we join even now in saying, worthy is the Lamb. Lord, worthy are you, not just then. You're worthy now. Lord, you won't just be worthy in a thousand years of our lives. Lord, you're worthy of our lives now. You're worthy of our praise now. You're worthy of our attention now. You're worthy of our trust even right now. Lord, help us to give you what you are worthy of. In Jesus' name.